This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS News presents a special edition of America Changed Forever. Trigger pullers, guns on our streets with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to America Changed Forever. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but every weekend there is a mass shooting somewhere. It certainly feels like that is the case. As homicides rise in cities, these mass shootings are driving the number of people killed in senseless violence higher. Last weekend, we saw mass shootings in South Carolina and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As of this taping, police are still looking for the suspects involved. I spoke in depth with Scott Schubert, the Pittsburgh police chief. What do you want to tell the people of Pittsburgh? Uh, that we're here, you know, we, we're, uh, we're grieving like everybody else. We, 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 don't, we don't want this happening in our community. We don't want this happening in any community in our country. Uh, and we, you know, our hearts go out to the, to the victims, to their families. Uh, there's a lot of people who are traumatized by this. And uh, to include our, our officers, what they went through trying to help people in a very chaotic uh, situation and a very dangerous situation and that we're going to do everything we can as the Pittsburgh police to work with the community to help bring those responsible for this to justice and that's that's our guarantee how would you characterize this kind of violence senseless i mean there's no need for this uh it's just it's it breaks your heart when you start thinking about what happened in Pittsburgh but um, it seems like every day you just you, you look and you see it's happening somewhere else, and this has to stop. Uh, the 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 lack of humanity in some people, where they think it's okay to take a weapon and shoot somebody, uh, it's got to stop. We we've got to figure this out, and we've got to work together uh, as as a community, all of our communities, to say no more. We, we've got to end this. All right. So what what do you think is the key to ending it? So I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things uh, that, that play into this. Uh, obviously, um, you know, changing so people don't get into this, this lifestyle. We do a lot with group violence intervention, you know, trying to help people get them out of that lifestyle, but really focusing a lot on education for especially our youth as they go through life, uh, that they're not looking to this lifestyle. They're not looking to this that it's okay to shoot somebody, that it's okay to take another life. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that are playing into it with the, the amount of weapons that are on the, on the streets. How are they getting these weapons? And why, why do they think it's okay to, to just go out and, and kill somebody? So I think we've got to provide an atmosphere for the juveniles as they grow up, not to get in this life, and talk about the weapons that are, that are out there. For you know us in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure it's affected a lot of other cities across the country, uh, but the, the lack of accountability of putting people 
who are shooting people or involved in shootings uh, in jail uh, or in you know juvenile detention centers. We see sometimes it's the same person over and over again, and that can be frustrating. It's frustrating for us. It's frustrating for the community, and it's frustrating for the victims uh, who were injured in these uh, these assaults. What do you say to people who think, "Hey, this is this is this is an, a socioeconomic problem. These are these are people committing crimes because they're trying to survive." Uh, what do you say to people who make that argument? Well, I mean, I think there is some to that. I mean, as far as you know, uh, there's communities that are more impoverished than others, and it uh, it may lead to you know, selling drugs or stealing or robbing and things like that. But it doesn't matter what your socioeconomical background is. Using a firearm to take another's life is, is not acceptable it's, and it's inexcusable. Not to be too philosophical here, but do you, do you think at some level in this country we have devalued what taking a life means? Uh, I think so. It's, I was in, a, in, a, in an event at a church uh, last week. And, you know, talking about you know, violence in the communities and what we can do to, to work together. And I kept calling it senseless uh, to me because it is senseless. And, you know, one of the people that were talking was in the community who lost a, you know, a, a friend to violence and helps with us with the, our outreach efforts in the community. And he said to us, you know, you said it's, it's, it's senseless, but to the person that's doing it, to the you know, juvenile or, or adult that's doing it in their mind, it makes a lot of sense. They know what they're doing. They know who they're shooting. They know why they're shooting them. And to me, I, I, it just it kind of blew me away because I wasn't thinking about that. And, you know, we've got to do everything that we can to change that behavior. And, and, and I don't have the answer. And I'm, I think uh, not everybody has the answer. Some people think they do. But I think we need to talk about this more and come up with reasons how we can help change this in, in all of our communities. Citywide, in terms of seize, you know, how many weapons you're seizing and the kinds of weapons, um, what are your officers seeing on the streets? Pittsburgh, we usually look for the West Coast and it rolls over. Uh, so when you're looking at the, you know, uh, what they call ghost guns, but the privately made firearms uh, that everybody's talking about, like we weren't seeing them. When I was working on, uh, a violence committee with the Major City Chiefs Association. You know, I was hearing all these stories about the the, the so-called ghost guns, and we really weren't seeing it. But it has really picked up. We're seeing more of of that uh, in our area. Uh, but the thing that's most you know scary for for uh, across the country. But you know, when you start getting these Glock switches, which turns it from a semi-automatic to a fully automatic, uh, and we're seeing more rounds being fired. Uh, in these various crimes, crime scenes, um, and seeing more ambush-style attacks, you know, which is really, it's, it's hard on any community when you're seeing things like that. All right. Is, is there anything we didn't cover that you think we should know? Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just truly sad when you look around the country, and it's literally every day we're seeing another shooting where multiple victims are involved. And, and it truly is, in my mind, uh, senseless because these things shouldn't happen. You know, two 17-year-olds should not be dead uh, at, at a party. Uh, eight other people ages 14 to 23 should not have been shot. 
Um, and you see that you know across the country, and we've we've got to fix it. Uh, we've got to come together as a community, in all of our communities. And I think the government plays a role in that as well. As I said in Pittsburgh, we have a great relationship with our federal partners and our county and, and state uh, uh, police. You know, but it's you got to work with the community to figure out the best way to do it. Group violence intervention helps, but there's so much more that needs to to be done. Reeve, you have kids carrying weapons simply because others are carrying them and they carry for protection. Uh, The more illegal guns on the street that people get, uh, the greater likelihood that it's going to be used in a a crime. Uh, And when you start looking at where you can switch a gun from a semi-automatic to an automatic and you see people more and more with extended magazines or drum magazines, the more rounds that are fired, the more people are going to get hit. And we got to fix this. I mean, a lot of the issues that you talked about are what we're, the availability of guns, ghost guns going up across the country, seizures of those, you know, just the same sort of, I don't know, five, six things that you see in all these cities. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy with the the amount of guns that are stolen, the straw purchases that are uh, out there, um, you know, and then obviously throwing in, the, in the, the ghost guns and loaning it to people. And I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's crazy. And it's getting in the hands of the wrong people. And there's a lot that probably have them uh, who, who never use them. Um, but there's those that do and consistently probably use it multiple times. Uh, you know, I, I really love, you know, partnering too with the ATF on linking uh, Ivan's these various casings and, and firearms uh, to multiple scenes and doing it very quickly, uh, I think is uh, is going to help. But, you know, to stop it in the future, the, the communities really need to come together. That was Pittsburgh Police Chief Scott Schubert after a mass shooting in his city. Washington Post reporter John Woodrow Cox is part of a team of reporters who set out to determine the toll that gun violence is taking on children in many of our cities. What the Washington Post discovered will really open your eyes to the level of violence that some segments of our society are dealing with each and every day. And it's as if there aren't enough people out there who care. So the the piece in the Washington Post, first of all, it's um, it's great writing. And it's an incredible topic um the 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 headline is orphaned by gun violence two kids two shootings two parents gone tell us how did you come up with this idea to write about this issue the origin really dates back five years (laughs) um i did the very first story i did in this long long run of uh, gun violence coverage that i've done was about a little boy in southeast dc whose father was uh, shot to death in the middle of the day outside of his school. And, you know, this child, his name was Tyshawn, or is Tyshawn, um, he was not considered legally a victim of anything. And, but he was, clearly. He was clearly a victim, in my mind, of gun violence. His father had been taken from him. He had been a witness to gun violence um, before. And, you know, th- that loss was devastating. And I began to wonder how many kids Tyshawn uh, represented. And that 
set me off in 2018, 2019 to start to try to figure this out. And, and the process uh, ultimately was actually to get um, the names of homicide victims, gun homicide victims from cities across the country, and then manually uh, research each individual person to try to figure out if they had if they had a kid. One seven-year-old that you talk about that you you explore her light life, Kaylee Washington. Tell us about her. Yes. So uh, you know we had this big uh, you know data finding that you know at least. 41 children a day are losing their, their uh, parent to gun violence in America or did in 2020. And, but we wanted to show that through um, an individual child's experience, their life experience. And Kate, Kaylee and her brother, uh, Kayvon, both lost their father in 2017. And then they lost their mother in 2020, both, uh, both to gun violence. So they were actually orphaned by this epidemic. And, you know, Kaylee had been exposed to gun violence since as far back as she remembered and was, in fact, there on that day in Baltimore uh, when her mother was killed. She was uh, inside this um, housing project when uh, her mother was shot dead outside. And, uh, and it's affected her profoundly. I mean, she had the immediate overwhelming feeling she dealt with was guilt because she had been with her mother just before the shooting. And uh, she became convinced that if she had stayed, rather than going inside to visit this family friend, that the shooter would have seen her mother with a child and then chosen not to kill her. She'd sort of convinced herself of that, that this was her fault. Which just speaks to the complexity, right, of the trauma from these things. And uh, so, yes, her, her story, I think, represented, uh, and Kayvon, her brother, really represented what so many of these kids go through. Yeah, and you report, the Washington Post, uh, data on this across 20 cities that were the site of nearly a quarter of the nation's gun homicides in 2020. More than 3,600 children lost their mother or father in a shooting. This is an analysis that the Washington Post uh, did. Those are those are staggering numbers that I think um, you won't see anywhere else, um, but it gives you an idea of the scope of the problem. Right. Yes. I mean, it's, and I, I suspect that is a significant undercount. I mean, that was just what we could find from what's in the public record, you know, going through people's Facebook pages and uh, in some cases contacting them, looking at obituaries, looking at online memorials. Uh, and, you know, we were able to use that, that data to extrapolate uh, basically if those trends in those communities remain consistent across the country, it would mean that more than the parents of more than 15,000 children in America were gunned down that year. And that's an average of at least 41 per day. And again, it's, you know, that number is probably many times greater. The, the real number is probably greater than that. And this also doesn't count suicides, which we know accounts for, uh, a huge percentage of the people who die uh, from guns in this country. So uh, to me, this was a hidden, even invisible population of kids who are most often only represented in news stories with sort of passing references like mother of two or father of three. Um, but there are real 
kids suffering behind those numbers. Yeah, and so what does this do to a to a community and communities across the country? If you have that many children losing parents to gun violence, and in some cases witnessing that gun violence, right? Well, I, we know that these kids deal with high high rates of depression, anxiety, of you know post traumatic stress. Um, you know, we we know too that the the number one most important thing that gets a child through trauma is adults in their lives who love them. And in all these cases, at least one of those adults is being taken away. So it's a really uh, complex trauma. Um, you know, it's not like losing a parent to, uh, to an illness. It's, it's not even like losing a parent suddenly to something like a car crash because someone made a decision to take their parent's life. It ended their parents' life. And so then that's the other piece, right? Where a lot of these shooters go uh, uh, unpunished. They, they're never arrested. They're never found. And, and you know, certainly in Kaylee and Kayvon's case, that is a fixation for both of them now about who did this. And, you know, could that person come after their family again? And, you know, Kaylee worries a great deal about her older brother and what could happen to him. Uh, because he still hangs out in the same area where, where his mother was killed. So it is, uh, it is a, a loss that will linger with them and will reshape their lives forever. That's just the reality. Is a lot of this or some of this targeted violence, is it random violence? Were they just caught in the crossfire? Uh, were you able to determine that? Uh, it's a combination, but certainly the majority of these shootings uh, were targeted shootings. Uh, most of them were. There, there certainly were cases of um, people caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, you know, a great many of the of the mothers who were killed that certainly would apply to. And um, but yes, most of these uh, most of these shootings were were targeted. Um, is it? overwhelmingly uh, impacting people of color. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really, that was among the most sort of jarring uh, findings from uh, from this study is uh, that, you know, black people made up just 30% of the residents of the 20 cities that uh, we analyzed in this research. But of the children in those cities whose parents were killed in gun homicides, 82% of them were black. So that illustrates, you know, how um, disproportionately this is, this is impacting children of color. Uh, well, you spoke to, to people who say that um, the makeup of the victims, uh, sadly, it seems, determines how uh, the nation responds to, to a a problem, a crisis, an epidemic like this. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, one of the uh, experts I talked to, Jocelyn R. Smith Lee, who is a uh, an academic and who, but who also has studied uh, the fallout from you know gun violence in cities for a long time. Uh, you know, she spoke about this idea that uh, 
you know, black people and especially black people who live in urban environments are somehow desensitized to violence. And just because it happens so often that, that they're used to it. And that's just simply not true. It is not true. The research has shown that, uh, over and over, but I do think that is part of the reason that, uh, people on the outside look at black children who are dealing with chronic gun violence and, uh, there is, whether consciously or subconsciously, there is a belief that, well, that's just the way it is for them. That is just the way it is in that community. And it's, uh, it's I mean, if that's not a form of systemic racism, I, I don't know what is. Because that's not the way we react when there is a school shooting at a mostly white school, where then the coverage is 24 hours a day all the time, and there's all sorts of support and money raised and... Uh, therapy offered. And that is simply not what's happening in black communities that are dealing with far, far, far worse problems with gun violence. What kind of response are you seeing to this article? Well, I think for a lot of people, there was a, a sense of shock that just at those numbers, just quantifying it. I think a lot of people thought, well, uh, this is certainly a problem, but it was something they just hadn't considered. They just hadn't considered this sort of population of children uh, and what they go through um, because they're just so seldom represented in media. So there has been, uh, I think, a real sense of uh, surprise and shock and, and outrage uh, that we do so little because certainly the story also deals with that piece of it is is how little support there is for these kids after they endure these losses. What, what did you learn in doing this piece, this research um, that will impact you going forward? Oftentimes when I do stories, I learn something I didn't know before, of course, but that sort of sticks with you. What was it about this story that, that you think will stick with you uh, as the reporter? I think, you know, despite having reported on the impact of, you know, kids and gun violence for, for uh, so long and written a book about it, I'm still deeply moved and affected by the specific impacts, like on individual children. So a few examples, there was a, a little girl who lost her father in Philadelphia, and she... Uh, he was cremated, and, and so she would spend time with the urn, and she would draw pictures and put it on top of the urn and put her toys there, and, and you know, she, that was sort of the way that she stayed connected to her father. And, and this has now been, you know, two years since her father was killed. And, you know, there was that moment with Kaylee where she tells me that I asked her, you know, at one point, why did she think her, her mother was killed? And she says, well, you know, it was my fault, right? And and how that had uh, cemented in her mind, right? That not only did she lose her mother, but she blames herself for losing her mother. And that's a whole other, you know, that guilt is a whole other aspect of her trauma. And then, you know, there was another moment the last time I spoke to Kayvon. Um, you know, he had told me a story that a mentor at school had asked him, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you want to be in five years? And he refused to answer the question. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say. And I 
uh, asked him later, you know, why, why not? Why, um, you know, why wouldn't you answer that question? And uh, what he said, give me one second. Sorry, I just want to quote it exactly. So I'll start that over is, you know, what he said when I asked him that question about why didn't you answer that at school? This is exactly what he said. He said, everybody don't make it to the next five years. Where I want to see myself in five years is alive. And this is a 13-year-old boy who's telling me this, right? Is that he's not sure if he's going to make it for another five years. So he doesn't want to entertain those thoughts about where am I going to be then? And I, I thought... This is profoundly unfair. We are failing. We are failing Kayvon and Kaylee, kids who have done nothing. They have done nothing to bring this on themselves. Nothing. No one can blame them for this loss and what they've endured. Uh, and yet we're doing virtually nothing as a society to support them and to get them through it. Wow, that's powerful. Um I'm wondering about you, your personal story. Did you did you grow up in a big city? Um, what is it that uh, draws your attention to kids like this? You know, I, I didn't. I didn't grow up in a big city. I didn't. You know, I didn't grow up in a in a place where um, you know gun violence was a big problem. Though there there certainly were guns around, and and you know, gun suicide uh, was certainly more of an issue. Because it was a military community uh, where I grew up, um, it wasn't really until I I got into it. I started reporting these stories and spending month after month after month with these families that I just felt like I had stumbled upon something that America didn't understand. And so much of my work has been devoted to trying to explain to people that it's not just the 45,000 people who were killed last year in shootings. It The number is so much larger, especially as it relates to kids. We're talking about millions and millions of children uh, who are unequivocally victims of gun violence. And I have just, <laughs> every year I think that I'm done, that I'm not going to do another year of this work. And it's hard and it's heavy, uh, but I just keep thinking, that there's a little bit more to say and you know hopefully stories like these will will wake people up john woodrow cox thank you thank you for having me wallet hub compared 50 of the largest u.s cities in the first quarter of this year versus last year and the year before that during the same period brianna fox is a professor at the university of south florida all right brianna so Wallet Hub ranked the cities with the highest homicide rates. What what did you think of that list? Well, there are a lot of interesting things about that list. One is that it wasn't all just large urban areas. There were some that were there were smaller cities that we wouldn't expect to be on that list, but that list was largely indicative of change in violent crime rates. So cities that had massive upticks compared to what they usually had were the ones that were most represented on that list. Um, and I think that's just showing the tumultuous times that we're living through right now. New Orleans is topping the list. Cincinnati, number two, Atlanta, Georgia, three, Baltimore, Memphis, Milwaukee, Louisville, Norfolk, Detroit, Dallas, Texas at number 10. Do you, do you see any common 
threads through these cities that are in the, the top 10. While there are many similarities, there's also many differences. Cities like Baltimore and Norfolk are both on this list. And this is what I was getting at before, which is that we have this uptick in urban gun violence, but we're also seeing gun violence in places that we don't typically see it like Norfolk, Virginia. And one thing that's seemingly occurring across the country in disparate places is that people are getting more access to guns. There seems to be this motivation to commit violent crime that's across the nation. And we've never really seen something like this happening all at once, all across the country. Um, and, and it's such a, a abrupt and massive uptick in violence. That's also something that we're really taking note of. Uh, in your research, are you finding that most of these crimes are being committed by people using uh, illegal guns, ghost guns? What types of weapons are they using? Actually, the research shows that most guns that are being used in these crimes were legally obtained. Now, this could be that they were legally obtained by the original owner, but some of them are being stolen out of cars, stolen from homes, or obtained without any background check. So there's some that were originally legally purchased, um, but then either passed on to somebody who throughout without a background check, they were able to use that gun uh, in a violent crime, or they were originally legally obtained um, and then stolen, let's say, out of that car uh, or a home. And then there's some that were just, you know, originally bought from, let's say, a gun show and no background check was done. But that was a, still a legal purchase, even though somebody was buying it for a nefarious purpose. Guns have actually been shown to be more valuable than cash on the street. Um, actually, a lot of times people that want to buy illegal firearms, um, this is a hot commodity. So there are some people that will specifically go into cars and go into neighborhoods where there are high volumes of vehicles where people know guns are left in them. They will check door handles, even if the car is unlocked and there's a gun in the glove compartment, um, they'll know to check this and to get those guns out. Um, and then, of course, use that to sell it illegally to somebody else uh, out in an area where people are looking to buy guns illegally. Um, there are also guns that are out there that were purchased legally, such as from a gun show, but the person who was buying the gun, we didn't know, had either a let's say, a red flag that they should not have been purchasing the gun. They are a prior felon. Um, these are all things that if a background check was conducted, we would have known that that person should not be eligible to purchase this firearm. But we don't know because no background check was completed. Um, the way to address this is to close this loophole to make sure that every single person who purchases a firearm is legally able to do so. Now, that doesn't mean that every single gun will stay out of the hands of people that are wanting to use them for negative purposes. However, it will certainly reduce the number, and any reduction is a good thing. Do you, do you think the majority of incidents happen with uh, weapons obtained in those ways? No. In fact, research shows that most of the gun violence that we're seeing today 
is actually being conducted using weapons that were obtained legally, meaning that people are just having more access to guns today. Um, and it's really the access that's driving a lot of this gun violence. Um, some people say that, well, it's, you know, if people purchase the guns legally, then they're of course never going to be used for a negative purpose. However, if you have a gun available to you, and let's say that person is feeling um, really angry, upset, we're all under a lot of strain right now. Um, if you don't have a gun, it will take time and energy to think of, you know, well, do I want to go buy a gun? Do I want to um, cool down from this incident? Or if you have a gun immediately available to you, sometimes people make snap decisions that aren't the right ones. But because they're already available to them, they can use the gun and do it when they really wouldn't have if they had to stop and think about their actions. Um, I have specifically seen studies that have used very sophisticated methods and approaches, and they've looked at, for instance, the causal effects of having stricter gun control policies and whether or not that has led to reductions in gun violence and homicides using guns across the nation. And that's exactly what they find, that it's really a matter of access to guns. And the more that we can control access to these guns, the more we have positive, you know, in terms of the trends we want to see, such as reductions in gun violence occurring. I see. So what what do you think can be done in these communities to turn the homicide rates around? Well, there have been a lot of debates about this aspect as well. Um, I think that the right answer is a combination of community and law enforcement interventions coming together. I don't think that we have one or the other that's going to solve this problem. So we're never going to arrest our way out of this issue, but we also know that we need police. We need police to be effective uh, in what they do, and especially taking a preventative stance versus a um, intervention after the fact stance. And what I mean by that is, we need to take a look at what's causing this rise in, in gun violence and start to do things to address it. So, for instance, we know that a lot of guns are being purchased recently. We had a record number of guns being purchased according to FBI and ATF data than at any point in U.S. history. There are more guns available in the United States and on American streets than at any point in U.S. history today. So because of that, there's more access to weapons. There's more opportunity to use a weapon if somebody is agitated or in a state where they are under strain and angry. And a lot of us are feeling that way today, given the circumstances of the world that we're living in. So what can we do about this? One is more community opportunities to prevent gun violence, such as mental health interventions, um, providing people who are experiencing substance use issues, housing uh, difficulties, lack of education, lack of jobs, making sure that we're addressing these strains and problems that we know increase the risk of anger, of strain, and ultimately of gun violence. But the other thing is we need law enforcement to do a better job of identifying the people that are these serial trigger pullers. 
the ones that are contributing disproportionately to our gun violence problem. There's certain people that research shows drive a lot of the crime rates because they're responsible for committing the most amount of offenses, even though there's just a small proportion of all the people. And so it's as small as you know, five to 10% of offenders that are responsible for 40 to 60% of all of violent crime. And so if you know that, we can specifically identify those people that are at highest risk for committing these violent crimes and say, what is it that they need to help desist, to help stop committing violent crime? It could be things like different interventions from the community, things like you know, housing, education, substance use treatment, mental health services, things that may be increasing their risk of gun violence. Now, none of those things are causal. It's not that somebody doesn't have a house or they use drugs or have a mental health issue and therefore they are going to commit gun violence. That's not true at all. But cumulatively, if these things increase the risk that somebody's going to commit gun violence, we certainly want to reduce risk by addressing those different risk factors. Of course, the best crime is the one that never happened. And so if we can address these risk factors before they occur, we can reduce the risk that people will become prolific offenders, which is exactly what we want. The problem, of course, is while we may know what to do, having the funding to do it, having the motivation and the political willpower to do it is what seems to be lacking. So putting more funds into community prevention efforts, into supporting law enforcement to be able to do these uh, policing strategies that are most effective, even if maybe they're not most politically viable, given you know the fact that there's different things going on in all these communities that people either think is the right thing to do or you know police are used to doing or communities are used to seeing. And of course, all of this is just because we we're, we know the right things to do, but I think it's hard to do them. Gun violence, while it's a staggering issue in the moment, is solvable. And we are able to look at other countries that have done a lot about their gun violence problems, and we know what works in those areas. We also look at cities and even um, rural areas in the United States that have seen upticks in gun violence and have done different things and have been successful. Where I'm from in Tampa, Florida, uh, we were one of those areas in um, just under a decade ago, we were seeing a massive uptick in gun violence, the highest rates of uh, gun violence since um, in the 1980s and 90s. And through using these different methods that I discussed, such as this um, targeted gun violence prevention program, we were able to reduce violent crime by 24%. And that is approach, that is an approach that has been used by dozens of cities around the nation. Um, it's fall under the umbrella of Project Safe Neighborhoods and Focused Deterrence, which is the name of the strategy that we, we used here in Tampa. And the um, Department of Justice has actually allocated over a billion dollars in funding for Project Safe Neighborhoods since it was uh, first started in 2001. So there's more 
funding being put towards programs that work, but we also need to know how to use them, how to put them into play correctly. And I think the police departments and the communities need to be willing to do these things. If we're willing to do what we know is right and have the resources and the ability to do them, I think we're going to be able to solve this problem. All right, Brianna, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast, check your local listing to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station, and you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.